Okay, Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hegesheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, and he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, the prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber the Kenite was separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zenanim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Do not, does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued him, the chariots and the army, to Harosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside into her tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. 
So on that day, the Lord subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. And the last part of um, chapter 5, and there was peace in the land 40 years. So we're, we're going through a sermon series in the book of Judges to learn how to live faithfully in a pluralistic world. And Judges tells the story of the challenges that Israel faced after moving into the promised land, the land of Canaan. So Israel, like us, was surrounded by nations that believed and practiced very differently from them. And Israel's major problem, we said, was the temptation to worship other idols alongside God. And Judges says, what we need to overcome the trap of idolatry is God's constant and continual faithfulness. And today's passages, today's passage in two chapters is one of the best examples of this. So here's, here's the overview to remind us. So Ehud, we heard about last week, who saved and led Israel, has died. And now without a leader, Israel is doing what is evil, which means worshiping idols. And so God says, you want to serve foreign lords. You want to serve the gods of Canaan. All right, here you go. God removes his protection and he allows the nations to oppress them. So Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Sisera, the commander of the army, they oppress Israel. Israel is cruelly oppressed for 20 years, and then they cry out. And what follows is the story of how God raises up Deborah and Barak and Jael to defeat Sisera and Jabin and to bring peace. So uh, Jesse read chapter 4 for us. Chapter 5 is the song of Deborah and Barak. And we didn't read it because right, the passages are long, but I encourage you to, to read it. It's worth your time, and, and we'll talk through it. It's lively. It's incredible. It's poetic language that describes the events that we just read. And at the end of chapter 5, we read, And the land had rest for 40 years. So we're going to look at today's passage under three headings. God the author, God defeats evil, and the ultimate victory. So God the author, God defeats evil, and the ultimate victory. So first, let's pray. Lord, we need you. God, every hour we need you. God, we pray that you would be with us, opening our hearts and our minds to hear your word um, and to be moved um, to follow after you and to live lives um, worthy of your call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, God the author. The, the author of Judges tells the story to clearly make the point. God is the one behind everything that happens. So let's take some time to look at how these two chapters teach us to read Scripture. So we have two chapters telling the same story back to back, but very differently. So first, we have the historical narrative that we read today. And second, we have the same story told as a song. And the two chapters together give the full story. And these, they form one of the best examples in Scripture of how to understand history. Why? The narrative sounds a lot like, you know, a bunch of facts, who did what and where. There's all this geography and a lot of detail. And God is hardly mentioned in chapter 4. But we get the conclusion in chapter 4, God subdued Jabin. Although I wouldn't blame you if you read through and you wonder, how exactly did that happen? Because the author doesn't really say. He just says, God subdued Jabin. But in fact, the author 
drives home the point in two ways. So first, the structure of chapter 4 actually encodes the key meaning. What do I mean? Well, in Hebrew literature, the structure of a passage would often be used to highlight the main idea, or to underline the main point. So today, we'll often make our most important point first, and then we'll sort of go from there, or we'll build and conclude with our important point. But Hebrew is different. Um, So let me show you. What do I do? Do I do this? Okay. So this is how one commentator outlines chapter 4, based on... Um, you know, what's there, and you, know, you can sort of tell. So there's the sons of Israel oppressed. Deborah, the prophetess, Barak and Sisera call out. Yahweh, the warrior, Yahweh, the Lord. Barak and Sisera go down. Jael, wife of Heber. Jabin, king of Canaan, subdued. And you can sort of see right away, right? This parallel structure with the key idea in the center, is called a chiasm. And the verse at the structural center of this chapter is, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Caesarea into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So that's the main point. God is the warrior. And I know you're wondering, how was I supposed to notice that? I mean, well, you don't have to, uh, because here's a trick. The point of every story is God. That's the point. God is always the main character. God's always the main plot line. So you can safely assume every story you read, that's the point. And, you know, maybe you'll notice a chiasm along the way. Um, So so the, the structure tells us this story is about God doing everything. But second, in chapter five, the author provides Deborah and Barak's perspective on what happens. Right? And chapter 5 reads completely differently from chapter 4. It's symbolic, metaphorical, poetic language. The Lord is everywhere, 16 times in chapter 5, compared to twice in chapter 4. Deborah and Barak have to burst into song to convey just how great God's salvation is. Their song theologically points out that God fought, that God orchestrated the events, that God deserves the honor. The song is the key to understanding the events. Right? Chapter 4 gives the human perspective. This is what happens, the events, the people. And chapter 5 gives the meaning. God did everything, and God deserves the honor. And look, every narrative in the Bible could be followed up by a song like this. Every event in history could have a description and a song. Because the teaching that runs throughout the Bible is the Lord is the God of history. He's behind everything. Every event deserves poetic imagery bursting at the seams with praise for God's goodness. So we ought to read and understand all of history as pointing to God's goodness. You know, there's this really interesting thing about the way these chapters are built. Chapter 4, this narrative, intentionally leaves out two really important details that we learn in chapter 5. So first, we learn that Caesarea was defeated because it rained, the river flooded, and the chariots became useless. So Caesarea had 900 chariots. They would easily slice through the Israelite army like a warm knife through butter. So that's why Caesarea can oppress Israel. Israel's army of 10,000 doesn't stand a chance. 
but Caesarea is routed. Chapter 4 merely says, And the Lord routed Caesarea and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Caesarea got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. But, you know, you're reading and you want to know, wait, how did that happen? What happened to the chariots? But the author does not tell us. Not here. However, chapter 5 says, let's see. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. And from heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Caesarea. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. So there you have it. God sent rain. The Kishon River flooded. And the muck and the mire stopped up the wheels of the chariots and made them useless. The song tells us why Israel could defeat Caesarea's chariots. Second, we learn in chapter 5 that Caesarea is a bad, bad dude. So in chapter 4, Caesarea is introduced right up front because he's got a reputation that precedes him. But chapter 4 doesn't give us that reputation. In chapter 5, we learn just how bad. At the end of the song, Deborah describes the way that Caesarea would brutally deal with the people he defeated. And we'll look at that description in detail soon. But for now, let's just point out that the description comes in chapter 5, not 4. And this is really interesting because the biblical authors are very careful about every detail that they include and leave out. You can't describe everything. So you have to be sure that what you describe is important. And sometimes they leave out things that we want to know. But the biblical authors leave it out because it's, it doesn't serve their purpose. What they do include is very important. But you might say, ah, but wait, Greg. Why would chapter 4 leave out these two important details? If the author is careful to include crucial details, why leave them out here? To show us that sometimes our human perspective misses important details. Our human perspective doesn't always give us all the information we might want. We we read chapter 4, and we can still understand the main point. God routed Caesarea. God is the warrior. But we really understand when we get to chapter 5. And in life, you don't always have Deborah and Barak singing over you, singing over what is happening to you. But you get to choose. Will you trust that God is in control of the events you see, that even the stars fight on behalf of him, or will you lose hope because you don't understand? Even when you don't have enough information... Will you trust God's perspective? And the message of Judges is, you can trust that right now, no matter what, God is faithful because he's been faithful in the past. Deborah and Barak's song here is a reminder. Whether you hear it or not, God is singing over you now. God has been singing over you since before you took a breath. So first, God is the author behind it all. Second, God defeats evil. So remember I said that Caesarea is a bad dude. This is really important. Because God's victory over Caesarea is not just a victory to set Israel free, though it is certainly that. It's also a victory over evil. It is God's firm judgment against injustice and evil, 
Caesarea deserves a tent peg through the head. So let's look at chapter 5. This is what Deborah sings about Caesarea. So she's, Out of the window she peered. The mother of Caesarea wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Caesarea. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. Caesarea is the kind of guy whose own mother would think, He's delayed in returning because, after all, Caesarea does take a long time to rape and pillage a village when he's done with it. His own mother would think, of course he's late. He's busy raping one or two girls, and all his men are doing the same. And that's why justice is putting a tent peg through Caesarea's skull. Caesarea has cruelly oppressed Israel for 20 years, and now you know what that looked like. 20 years of cruel oppression from a man who considers women's bodies just another spoil for more. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck and two wombs. To Caesarea and the Canaanite men, women are just a womb for their use. This is uncomfortable, but it's important. It doesn't do us any good to downplay the horror of injustice because this is a reality for a lot of people. Just because reality is awful Just because we can't stomach the horror doesn't mean we get to instead talk about lighter, easier things. If this is your reality, God sees what you've experienced, and God hates it. The Bible gives a vivid description of the horror of Caesarea's cruel reign so that we can know why God had to take him out. God hates injustice. God's salvation makes all things right. Injustice will be defeated. Righteousness will reign. All of creation will be set free. And we should stress, this passage shows us in particular how much God hates injustice toward women. It's no coincidence that two women, Deborah and Jael, take down Caesarea. God uses women to take down Caesarea precisely because of Caesarea's violence against women. Do not miss the point God is making. If you treat women like objects, if you assault them, push them around, treat them like spoils of war, you deserve a tent peg through your head. We all know that sexual violence and physical assault are so horrifyingly prevalent in our society. So I can't say, now I doubt anybody here is literally like Sarah, though I would like to. But too many women experience physical assault and sexual violence for me to think that there aren't people here right now who need to be reminded. If you sexually assault women in any way, if you touch them in ways they don't want to, if you force them to do things they don't want to, if you do things to them they don't want, God says you deserve a tent peg through your skull. For the rest of us, we also need to pay attention. We can still be guilty of contributing to how our society devalues and degrades women, even if we don't physically assault women. After all, the degradation of women in our society is extremely prevalent. It's everywhere. A good friend of mine told me, I don't know that there is a woman alive who has not had crude words tossed her way. 
it's almost impossible that you and I haven't been infected by it. So you might think, oh, but not inside the church. We don't have that problem. Unfortunately, we do. Um, so Beth Moore is an evangelical Bible teacher. You might have seen her picture up there this morning. Um, right? A lot of people here read her books, um, attended her events. We're hosting one soon. Um, you probably know there's been a lot of news lately about how women are treated in the workplace, but also in church. And she responded to a lot of the news by saying this. Are we sickened? Yes. Surprised? No. She's talked about how she's been quote, misused, stared down, heckled, talked naughty to by pastors and Christian men, right? So married pastors would talk naughty to her. And she's not the only one. She rightly says that Christian men should not treat women any less than Jesus treated women in the Gospels, always with dignity, always with esteem, never as secondary citizens. And her point is that far too often men aren't doing that. Far too often we don't do that. She's right. Now, please don't be quick to disregard and say, that's not me. Yeah, others, that's not me. I mean, it's almost surely true that most of us really try, really do try hard to value and respect women the way that Jesus did. Right? To respect them as the bearers of God's image that God made them. We know that Jesus was radical and how he loved and affirmed women. But if our society treats women with such rampant disrespect, if so many people send so many messages that women are objects, that women are to be looked at and talked down to, that you can grab them however you want, brag about it later, we can't be too sure that we haven't been affected by it. We probably say or do things that we shouldn't, whether we mean to or not. So please consider are there ways that you think or that you talk that make women less than? Right? Do, you, do you tell women what to do more frequently than you tell men what to do? Does your gaze linger over women? Do you comment on how women look more often than you comment on how men look? Do you expect your wife to do things well because she's the woman, but maybe you should just do it? Do you look at pornography? And don't let me limit you. Think, think hard. Every single one of us needs to think very hard about the ways that we fail to honor women the way that Jesus did. And if you're a woman who has felt unheard, mistreated, or has experienced injustice or violence, this is what God says. You are loved. You are valued. I will bring justice to your assailants, and I can and will heal you. And as a church, we can't sit on the sidelines when it comes to misuses of power, inside or outside the church. In, De- in chapter 5, Deborah sings about all the tribes who were asked to come help fight Caesarea, but they didn't come. You know, there was something else to do. There were flocks to care for, there were ships to tend to, and she condemns those tribes who didn't come to the aid of Israel. In contrast, Barak obeys Deborah and goes to battle. And we can fail to go to battle in a few ways. And one obvious way is we don't lend our voice to the cries against assault, misuses of power, or derogatory speech. The church should stand against injustice. I mean, we've heard about a number of ways that we care about caring for the orphan, caring for countries in crisis. God cares about injustice. The church 
should stand against injustice because God does. We should lament over misuses of power, especially inside the church. We should lament over derogatory speech or careless words that demean women. We should lament the violence experienced around the world. Another way we can fail to go to battle is by disregarding the stories we hear, by failing to listen to perspectives that aren't our own. So men, women have a different perspective from us, and that's good. We need their perspective. They've experienced things we haven't. So if you hear a story and you think, no, you're mistaken, that can't be, you must be wrong, well, stop and think, maybe I don't understand. Maybe I need to try harder to see it from her perspective. Give it a try. So later today, later this week, ask some women in your life to tell you their stories. And listen to it from their perspective. See it from their eyes. That's one way you can join in going to battle. So we've seen that God is the author, that God defeats evil, finally the ultimate victory. So this passage, like last week, shows us the pattern of God's salvation. So first, we learn that God works in myriad ways. This salvation requires a wise judge of moral character to lead the people, a military warrior to defeat an army, supernatural events to disarm the chariots, and a surprising assassin to kill the enemy. No one person and no three people deserve the honor because God deserves the honor. Second, we see characteristics of God's saviors because Deborah and Barak are admirable leaders. They're one of the few examples in Judges of like, yeah, these are good judges. So Deborah is a wise and courageous prophet and judge. She goes out to battle. even though That was unheard of the time. Women don't go to battle. But when Barak asks her to go, she goes. Not only is she the one who sends him, but she goes with him. And Barak is similarly courageous and faithful. He demonstrates faith in going to battle. Remember, his army stands no chance against 900 chariots. And he doesn't know that God's going to flood the river. He doesn't know how this is going to go down. But when Deborah says go, he goes. He trusts God, and so he trusts her. He recognizes the value of her faithfulness and character. That's, you know, why do you think he wants Deborah to go with him to battle? To fight with him? Remember, she's not going to fight. But he says, Deborah hears from God, and she's wise and just. I need her by my side. So finally, Barak fights, even though he knows he will not get the glory. Right? Remember, Deborah tells him, this, he's not being delivered into your hand. You're not getting the glory out of this. And he says... Suicide mission against 900 chariots and I'm not going to get the glory? I'm in. So third, we learn that God's justice brings peace. Right? After Caesarea and Jabot are defeated, we read, and the land had rest for 40 years. When evil is defeated, when justice is done, the people finally had peace. And some of you might think, wait a minute, an angry God... Tent pegs through skulls. You might be concerned if we celebrate God's anger and violence at injustice, won't that make us angry, violent people? Won't that lead to violence and conflicts, not peace? Not at all. So Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian, and you guys know about all the violence and atrocities that have happened in the Balkans over the years. 
So as a, as a Croatian, Wolf has thought a lot about how can we end the violence? And this is what he says. He's a, he's a theologian at Yale. He says, to end the violence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. You point to them. We should not retaliate? Why not? I say, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. If you know God won't repay, then why shouldn't you? Only God's anger at injustice can possibly lead to peace in the face of injustice. If you still aren't convinced, if you, if you still aren't convinced that injustice requires God's action, I think it's because we, you know, are in the quiet of the suburbs, or farther. <laughs> so it's possible that we don't understand the horror of injustice in the world. So this next story is, uh, is admittedly, it's, it's hard, it's a little disturbing, but it's, it's true. And it's too prevalent, and so we need to hear stories like this. I'm just going to read it. So, Bob is a pastor who one summer went to work in a poor urban neighborhood working in housing projects. He met a girl named Ava, who was 14 years old and extremely attractive. But her life was a wreck. There was crime and drugs in her family. She was cynical. She felt like she had no future. But she came to know Christ, and she became radiant. Her life changed, and she became a different person. But as Bob was leaving for the summer, she told him, Bob, I'm under terrible pressure. A large gang in the projects recruits girls to be prostitutes for wealthy white men in the suburbs. The gang makes money, the girls are like their slaves, and they're trying to force me to join them. Bob didn't quite get it, so he said, well, just resist. The Bible says, resist evil and it will flee from you. Call somebody for help if you need it. Bob came back the next summer and Ava wasn't at Bible study. She had stopped coming two weeks after he left. When he found her, she wouldn't look at him in the eyes. And eventually she tells him, I gave in. And Bob looks at her and says, how could you? First, they beat my father. They said they'd beat him, and they did. And then they beat my brother. Then they said they'd all rape my mother. So I joined. Bob asked, but why didn't you go to the police? And she turned to him and said, Bob, who do you think they are? And then Bob figured out what maybe you already have. The police department was running a prostitution ring using poor teenage girls in the projects. Now, 
what hope is there for the world if God will not one day set things right? Because jail spiked through Caesarea's head only brought peace for 40 years. We need a victory that will last. And the good news of the gospel is that God's ultimate victory over injustice came not when jail drove a spike through Caesarea, but when the infinite sin of humanity drove spikes into the hands and feet of Jesus. So Jesus never did anything deserving a scratch. Jesus came to bear the curses, the taunts, and the nails our injustice deserves. Jesus brought peace by bearing God's judgment on sin and evil. Jesus didn't just defeat one bad dude doing evil. At the cross, Jesus defeated the powers of Satan. Jesus disarmed the evil powers and authorities, the dark spiritual forces behind every bad dude doing evil. That's why from the cross, as they are crucifying him, Jesus could pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He defeated spiritual evil so he could forgive human sinners. And because Jesus went to the cross, we are freed to fight spiritual darkness behind evil and yet to love our enemies. We can pray for those who persecute us. We can do good to those who do evil. We can forgive those who hurt us. And in doing so, we are driving a tent peg through the skull of the demonic forces of evil. And we know that love and forgiveness will succeed because Jesus is the ultimate savior. Jesus drove the ultimate spike through sin and death by letting death drive its worst into him. And as a result, Jesus ushered in a reign of peace so that when he returns, all of creation will have eternal rest. Our hope for justice is that one day Jesus will return. Let's pray. Lord, we need you every hour we need you. God, we thank you that you hate injustice. You are worthy of our devotion and worship. God, you love us. It's because you love us that you hate the sin that corrupts your good creation. Come, Lord Jesus. Come into our hearts. Come into our families. Come into our neighborhoods. Come into our nation. Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.